This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 855 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Indeed, this is the Beyond Zero Emissions show. Thank you very much to Peter and Marissa just now for the Doing Time show. And Viv and I, or predominantly Viv, I must say, have a a big show lined up tonight. It's actually the Timor-Leste Day Part 2. If you were listening in last week, you heard the Timor-Leste Day Part 1 show, a series of interviews, and you've got a series of interviews for us tonight, Viv, from Timor. Yes, well, listeners might be wondering why I've devoted two shows to Timor-Leste, but we're going there again tonight because I, I just thought that these people there with very little, few resources are actually doing marvellous things, and it fits right in with the Beyond Zero Emissions report on land use, which um, one of the things that they found in the land use plan was that this uh, black carbon, you know, soot from burning off, you know, we're still burning off in Australia, and bushfires certainly was a big climate forcer. And one of the three people I interviewed in, in tonight's show is Dr. Dan Murphy, and he has a clinic there and he uh, in Dilly, and he said the same thing. He says he sees a lot of TB, and it's made much worse, especially for women who... I have to cook on wood fires and I hope that any DZE types might be listening in tonight and they get their minds around, well, you know, the logistics of rolling out more solar ovens and uh, renewable energy sources so they don't have to burn off so much wood. Mm. Yeah, I understand China had, um, uh, or still does have a huge problem in the same regard. It's actually the cooking which is causing yeah. a lot of emissions. I actually loved the Dan Murphy interview, Viv. I've already listened to it and I thought He's he great. was um, he was very insightful. Also, his, uh, when you said to him uh, what, what, what can be done and he yeah. said it's, again, we hear it so often in relation to developing countries, it's all about the women, empowering the mm. women. Well, he was great. It's only a very short interview, but he was he was really great, and uh, I just think listeners will get a lot out of that little little bit from him. And uh, he's a he's a well known figure in East Timor. There's also someone who I hadn't heard of before called Ego Lemos. He's a musician, but he's also a real permaculture guru, and he was part of the resistance under the Indonesian uh, time. And uh, I want listeners to tune in to what he has to say. It's quite a you know, slow-moving kind of interview because he, he explored a lot of themes there. But he really wants the, Indo, you know, sort of um, the Indonesian influence on white people eating just a lot of white rice and imported food to stop. And this fits in with the National Nutrition Plan. And we heard a lot about that. They have this, you know, really strong emphasis on nutrition now so that you don't have childhood malnutrition. They have enough food. They should be able to, um, you know, 
avoid malnutrition now. And uh, he talked about permaculture principles, so not going in for big-scale rice, terrace rice cultivation. So it really fits in with Beyond Zero. We're trying to find solutions that they are facing climate change, as we are. They've had quite a lot of drought, and they certainly have excessive rains, and they're worried about sea level rise, mm. too. It's only an island. So um, I hope listeners will have patience with this because it, they are rather the longer type of interviews, but they explore ideas. And then the third person I talked to was Barry Hinton. He was an Australian person who's had a long history of, um, uh, you know, working with communities, Aboriginal communities, I think, in Australia. But then he's lived on Timor for about in Timor for about fifteen years, and he has his own eco lodge where famous people go there apparently and go for diving on the beautiful coral. He talks about beautiful coral. It's not an advertisement for his place, but it, it, you know, I did sound glorious to go out with with his team of people, they take you out on the coral reef. and um, But he lives this very frugal way. They save water, they have these drop toilets, no flushing toilets. Um, they're very conscious of every, every saving they can make and they have all solar panels there, mm. you know, fueled by solar, solar power. And it's only a small island, probably you might say it's only a small example, but he's showing the way and other people are taking that up, especially for village-style um, living, people are... It's a living example. They can see it there, and he trains people. He's a teacher. He was a teacher back in Queensland originally. So that's that's mostly what it is. And I think um, the reason I really want people to hear this is that these people are just such a shining example of what you can do with very little. And they're very decent people. I just love talking to them. I love being in Timor. It was, you know, so poor but just positive. You know, mm. they, they don't take problems lying down. They're going to face them and find strategies to get around them. Well, in a way, the people in developing countries, they're not cushioned from climate change by, by wealth. Mm. So they have to meet these issues uh, arguably more, more head on. Yeah. So well, I, um, I hope tonight we're also going to have Janet Rice, Senator Janet Rice, talking about the renewable energy target. I, I was very disappointed that that passed in Parliament with the um, inclusion of forest biomass, which means that'll give the green light to more logging. I'm sure she'll talk about that. But I, in case, just before she comes on, I just wanted to say something to the listeners. They might have noticed it just in the news. One positive sign, you know, we get tired of getting government, and I'm sure people in government get tired of, you know, the merry-go-round of these bills that go into the Senate and then they go out again and go round and about. It's not very fast progress we're making in the, at the parliamentary level, but the business uh, group uh, groups are getting together. There was a new alliance mentioned today in the papers. Uh, the Business Council of Australia, the Australian Aluminium mm. Council, the Australian Industry Group, and and lobby groups like this, the Climate Along Institute. Along with uh, ACF, was it that one? Yes, and yes. the ACTU. So yes. the, the unions, um, they are getting together and they want stop to stop piecemeal policies, and they ramp up, want to ramp up our commitments towards Paris. I have to say, if we wait for the Liberal government uh, on, on climate disruption issues, then we'll probably all burn. But speaking yes, no. of parliamentarians, I've got Janet Rice on the line. Oh, wonderful. All right. Well, good luck with the, her, the interview. I would love to, love to hear it. Okay. Thanks, all right. Cheers, Viv. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Kim Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear 
a reflection of real life and 3CR being in. Yes, Senator Rice, are you there? I am. Hello, Jane. Oh, thanks so much for calling in. So, Senator Rice, we um, had the RET pass through the Senate last week. What what should we be more incensed? Uh, sorry, the RET amendment, I should say. What should we be more incensed about? The reduction of the RET target for 2020 from 41,000 to 33,000 gigawatt hours or the reintroduction of burning of native forest habitat? Oh, they're both equally bad and equally very, very sad and depressing and enough to make you angry. And... Indeed. Oh, yes. They seem, the government seems to save up all of its most pernicious bits of legislation for the last sitting week of each session. So just to, you know... But, you know, it's, it, I've had a huge amount of, of good feedback from people who have just been so pleased that we were there to be standing up against it and know that the fight is still going to go on. And what do you make of uh, Labor's flip-flop, their backflip on uh, the, the introduction of the amendment and then... And then uh not using that as a deal breaker. How do you how do you view that? Well, I'm very disappointed. I mean, Labor's position was that they felt that they had to give the renewables and industry certainty, and so that any um, legislation that kept was, a renewable energy target in place, you know, regardless of how bad it was, was better than nothing. Um, I actually don't think that that was the appropriate thing to be done at all because, in fact, we haven't even got certainty with the reduction to 33,000 gigawatt hours. We've got, you know, the Prime Minister saying that he'd like to see it reduced further. R-E-D-U-C-E. That's right. We've got the the deal that that the government did with the crossbenchers to completely do everything they can be doing to nobble the wind industry. Um, There's no certainty there at all. So I think Labor just should have stood firm and said no, because, in fact, if they had, the existing target of 41,000 gigawatt hours would have stayed in place. Mm. Um, and then to, to to vote for the legislation with the burning of wood from native forest included in it was, was just a, yeah, mm. a, a really awful blow. Mm. So, well, I know some apologists for, this, uh, for the, uh, the burning of the native forest habitat. I know they say that there are processes and regulations the government has in place to ensure that only wood waste offcuts or branches are used. Do you know, Senator Rice, of any such processes or regulations to ensure that whole logs aren't taken out of native forests? No, there aren't such um, controls at all. And in fact, in the questioning of the relevant minister in the Senate during the debate on it, we did get them to admit that the current... um, type of logging that occurs which has you know around 70 to 80 percent of the logs that get um, removed from the forest ending up at the moment going to end up as wood chips that it would be quite viable and quite um, uh, it would fit under the legislation for those to be instead of ending up as chip logs being turned into paper pulp to instead be fed into um, energy generators um, so the o- the only test that is included in the renewable energy target um, legislation is that there has to be the logging has to be done for a so-called higher value, which means that you'd have to have um, furniture. Well, no, basically any saw log, and it's based on the financial value. So, mm. and again, so that then depends mm. upon how how small a price that they end up getting for the logs that are going to be burnt for energy. And we know that with the history of um, the forest in the forest 
um, state forest agencies. Mm. They are very good at selling off wood at less than the price that costs cost them to produce it. Um, in Victoria, here in East Gippsland, for example, mm. the um, leaked information about the financials of the operations of Vic Forest show that you know in East Gippsland they're running at a at a loss of five million dollars every year. Mm. So it's very easy to overcome a high values test if you sell off the the logs for bioenergy for um, for next to nothing. Yes. Well, moving along to another another question, I thought I might ask you. Given that we've had a change of government in um, in Victoria last year, uh, has the outlook for the establishment of the Great Forest National Park improved? We actually did a show. Vivian um, went out and recorded in near Warburton a couple of weeks ago. She did a show touching on the Great Forest National Park proposal. So, has the new government uh, has there been a positive? Um, outlook uh, introduced for the Great Forest National Park or Leadbeater's possum? Yeah, well, look, it's, it's looking more positive than it was before with the, the Liberal government at the state level you know, at the end of last year. Yeah. But oh, it's still a long way from being a certainty. Um, I mean, and things like the, you know, federally, the Labor government sort of rolling over on the burning of wood from native forests just shows that you, we certainly can't um, put all of our eggs in the basket of hoping that Labor are going to deliver on such things and essentially it comes down to the 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 pressure and the power of the campaign and that's that's the reason why we've got it as far as we have at the moment because people have been there's been a terrific campaign and people have been speaking up about you know the values of this of the forest that that should be protected in the great forest national park Absolutely. the the animals like the leadbeater's possum that live there but also the you know the forest owls and all the other amazing wildlife that live in this live in these forests mm. so what's happening at a state level is that they're setting up a task force that's going to in be looking at, at whether a national park you know, could be a, a potential outcome. So, I mean, it's good to have a process in train that has got that as a potential um, outcome at the end of it, but it's going to need you know, more, even more of a massive campaign in order to, to get that forest protected um, well, than we've had in the past. But there's such strong um, reasons, you know, the values of these forests for, for wildlife, for water, for recreation and tourism. For fire, you know, fire mitigation? For fire mitigation. That's right, and mm. and in particularly as as carbon stores. So just allowing that forest to grow old and to just keep on soaking up carbon and storing it away. We know mm. that if you know, it's in fact you know, Greg Hunt, the federal environment minister, he's got a report sitting on his desk that he hasn't made public that shows that if those forests, instead of being logged, were protected in the Great Forest National Park, it would soak up 3.2 million tonnes of of carbon um, every year. Mm. And at the price of carbon that was achieved in the the Liberal government's own um, carbon auction Mm. a few months ago would be worth about $40 million to the state every year. Mm. And instead, we're losing money by logging that forest. So, you know, to me, it's a complete (laughs) no-brainer. You know, the position is gobsmacking at best. But um, can I just segue that uh, into, because I know I haven't got much of your time tonight, can I segue that into my last question? Was that uh, here on the BZA show, we believe in uh, that citizens need to take stronger and more vocal action in relation to climate change. Have you got any uh, 
um, uh, encouragement for our listeners as to what action they could usefully take at this time? Well, look, I think you know, there's a whole range of things to do and, and you know, I think it's really making your voices heard. I mean, going back to the burning of wood for native forest, now that, you know, that we've got the disastrous outcome of that having been included under the renewable energy target, it's going to be citizen power, it's going to be community power that's going to be stopping that happening. So we've written to the energy retailers and said, please, you know, tell us that you are not going to accept renewable energy certificates um, or so-called renewable energy certificates from the burning of native forests. And so people being able to, you know, vote with their mm. with their feet and with their dollars and taking their... Um, Take, taking taking their business away from retailers that aren't willing to guarantee that. But really it's... Um, so that would be people approaching their retailers directly through yep, email? Exactly, or, and I yep, think yep. that we're going, to, we're going to be sort of you know, letting people know what to do over the, the coming weeks, you know, having just, you know, lost out in the parliament last week. It's like it's, we're in, at the stage of working out what the next stage of the campaign is from here. So, I mm. mean, so, certainly, you know, staying in touch with... with with myself, um, you know, via my Facebook page or via my website on our, our list if you're interested in that. So we'd make sure that you're, you know, tuned in so that you can know know what to be doing. Um, okay, but, and I'll put those details on our on the 3CR podcast page. That, that would be great. But generally, I think, you know, in the continuing the push, it's it's actually quite heartening to see the, the increasing um, focus on, on climate. I think we're, we're in a situation where in the lead up to the federal election um there's a lot of it it's it's going to be critical and it will be an election issue so you know making your voices heard to your to you know every every member of parliament and and throughout the community and particularly you know, using whatever networks that people can in order to be able to um apply to, pressure yeah apply mm. pressure and you know we know that you know the simplest things are actually the most powerful things of you know talking to your friends and family talking to the the parents of your kids at school you know talking to your, you know your local shopkeeper mm. about issues um you know about climate about the protection of our forests and actually so getting people getting them Back on them, on and and increasingly on the public agenda is the sort of thing that everyone can be taking. Every sort of action that everyone can be taking. Good advice indeed. Well, I'll have to leave it there, Senator Rice. I can see my producer nodding vigorously at me. Um, thank you so much for your time, and hopefully we'll talk to you again. No worries. Ne- Thanks very much, Jane. Good eye. Okay. And that was Senator Janet Rice of the Greens Party. Now going to the rest of the show, as uh, discussed with Vivian uh, a few minutes ago, we start off uh, with the Timor-Leste National Anthem. Yeah, 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 yeah
studio here of Lao Hamatuk, and I've met a very famous person here. His name is Ego Lemos. I know he's a musician, but what he's famous for our point of view is his permaculture. And uh, when I arrived in Dili, I saw a huge banner across the main street saying, come to this conference tonight at a certain, such and such hotel about turtles. And um, Ego Lemos was going to give the entertaining talk about turtles, and seeing as it was the day of the turtle, um, sometime around there, I think that's why he was uh, going to be getting people to be taken interest in conservation. So, Ego, welcome to our radio program. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get involved in permaculture and one getting to know about turtles? Thank you. I was getting involved with permaculture back in November '99. So since after Indonesia left Timor, but uh, before that, 1997, I was involved in the student movement, part of the uh, uh, liberation uh, struggle, and so I'm leading a group of students. Uh, we trying to campaign on the uh, organic agriculture. Oh. That's back in 1997. And because what I saw, uh, I uh, observed during the, you know, the Indonesian occupation, and I was growing up, and I saw the more uh, when Indonesia introduced, uh, you know, industrial agriculture or modern agriculture is actually not helping Timorese farmers to, you know, mm. eradicate their poverty, but it is actually uh, create more dependent and destruction of the environment in Timor-Leste. It's mm. causing, you know, uh, apart from economic, because, you know, the more uh, Timor's farmers depend on buying fertilizer, pesticide, and want to use tractors and so on, while they still have the traditional knowledge, you know, saving their own seeds, mm. you know, using, uh, lo- you know, organic material <coughs> to fertile their land, and also using animal to plow their land as well. Mm. But when the the modern ideas come, all of the suddenly, you know, uh, the farmers starting to think like, oh, my knowledge might be might be backward. Mm. So and then they starting to, you know, just watching. You know, looks like Timorese farmers became marginalized that time. So you know, waiting for Indonesian uh, government especially Minister of Agriculture, and uh, they involved with military, and so they force people to accept, you know, uh, high-yielding variety, you know, of seeds, and it's all hybrid, and also tractors and mm. chemical fertilizer, pesticide, and all of this they, they implemented through what uh, they call cooperative uh, village unit. Uh. which is very famous in that time called KUD. And that's very military uh, control. So because of that, and I was uh, starting to think that after uh, this influence and also the uh, pressure from outside, so the farmers starting to get lost their traditional mm-hmm. knowledge, you know. They they starting to lose their uh, knowledge of saving their own seeds. Mm. You know, using the animal to plow the land, mm. using you know organic material to fertile the land, mm. and also um, using the traditional uh, law 
to protecting the you know conservational areas yeah. and so on. So. I'd just um, like to interrupt here. Could you describe a bit the land? Because I've just been to Baucau and we came back down the road from Baucau. There's a lot of rice terraces. And I was surprised. It looks like uh, in other parts of Asia where you have the land is terraced and there's buffalo and rice terraces. Is that the sort of thing you're talking about, that they changed the land use? Was it different before the Indonesian um, people were here? It is. Uh <coughs> Yeah, what you saw is actually it's a, a completely new type of agriculture. Uh, I think uh, back in 1960s, East Timor, even though uh, still under Portuguese uh, colony, mm-hmm. and uh, East Timor or Timor-Leste is, uh, even though economically as considered as a poor country, but in terms of the food production, is sufficient mm. in that back in that time, 1960s, mm. up until 1963. Yeah. And every household have food, and they have uh, you know small animals. They they also growing different you know uh, type of fruits, yeah. vegetable, and, you know. But when I look at look at the data, the rice is only small part of mm. the you know the whole food food production yes. at that time. Yeah. Mainly corn, yam, and sweet potato. That's the domination of uh, food uh, staple that time. Whereas now we went to the Independence Day at Maliana and the president spoke to people and I read the translation. He said, oh, we must stop importing so much Mm -hmm. food and drink. And that surprised me. I didn't realize you would be importing. Is that meaning importing rice mostly? Yeah, it is. We're here when we're talking about food. We're mainly talking about rice. I can see this is the situation. You mentioned the deforestation, and Mm. I know there was a lot of destruction to, you know, because of the Indonesian occupation to get rid of the places where people might hide, Mm. where the Mm. um, Fretilin soldiers Mm. might be hiding, so they destroyed the forest. Is that correct? So uh, what's happening now about reforesting? Because it's very important, isn't it, for Mm. the water cycle to keep, more forests growing. Is there some uh, work now happening to reforest some of those mountains? Well, uh, it's not that many. Only small percentage of uh, you know the government budget is putting into reforestation is very small. Mm-hmm. While uh, every year we lost you know a few percentages of the forest. Even though when Indonesia left, the forest of Timor on maybe only uh, 25 or 30 percent the forest left. And after 14 years with independence, even less forest. Huh. And uh, because when we walking on the ground, we can see in you know, our uh, greens. Mm. But when you fly on the top mm. from the aerial uh, views, you see so many dry land here in Timor, especially during dry season. So, again, not many organizations that interesting in the defore- uh, reforestation. Uh-huh. And so, while the timorous farmers still implementing mm-hmm. a traditional way of um, uh, farming system that, you know, cutting, slice and burn, and so it's a Sometimes it's a good way. For instance, in Aboriginal culture, they, you know, uh, burn the, the forest to control the you know the humus yeah. so that you know the the organic material not too much so that it could cre- could create you know uh, 
while uh, fire, oh, right? Yes. yes. But here we don't have that much, mm. so we don't have that dense forest, mm. so that you can burn the forest. No. So you have very thin organic material on the ground. So I don't think that's uh, we use in that uh, way of farming is it's not appropriate actually. Yeah. So and now we lost so many uh, areas. You know, you can see so many uh, dry rivers. Mm. Yes. And also uh, dry uh, springs mm. and so on. And not many. I can tell you almost uh, almost hard to see or hear any organization doing water conservation in mm. this country. Yeah. Only starting with Permatil, Permaculture Timor-Leste, we start to uh, working with different organizations to look at how to conserve, you know, the springs. Yes. Uh, because from springs you can... After you, you bring back the spring water spring, then the community, local community can rely on that water supply. Mm. They can use to uh, for fish ponds. They can use to grow mm. vegetables, and so many uh, consumption out of that. Yeah. So therefore, I think for the future, you know, not not to that long, but we mm. need to start from now on yeah. that we have to put attention on reforestation for water conservation and land conservation. I went to was Ata Uro Island and that's a very tall mountainous place but with a little fringe around the edge that's and coral reef. Yeah. yeah, I spoke to a few people there from Conservation <coughs> International and they said well this is really a permaculture dream mm. because mm. nobody's using pesticide mm. here mm. and you have you know small gardens providing everything right. and they're conserving the seeds there and um, I, I think it's a future your work, the sort of work from Permatil, if this catches on, is this yeah. something that's popular now with yeah. farmers or with government people? Are they going to promote this? Yes, uh, from my my work, like uh, my organization, Permaculture Timor Leste, we're still promoting and keep pushing and advocating for it, and we try to influence uh, the government and also other organizations too use permaculture mm. as the the um, approach as a uh, new wave approaching for sustainable agriculture and <clears throat> because without that then we will impact on so many things yeah. you know not only economic but also uh, you know uh, sociocultural of the people mm. and also can be a political aspect uh, in it and so also create people, um, make people more dependent on uh, outside. For instance, even though Timor-Leste is an agrarian country, but as president uh, making a statement that uh, the importation of food is so high in this country. Mm -hmm. And that's because 
we don't value, you know, we don't value the food that grow within the country. Uh-huh. Do you yeah. think you said you started off as a student activist? Do you think this is like another step in decolonization? You know, to decolonize the minds of the people and to say, no, you are Timorese, this is valuable what you've got. Don't lose it, this valuable tradition. And like you said, with the seeds, do you think it's an attitude change? Yes, it is. Like uh, what I've seen is, you know, when Indonesian occupied Timor, they use arm mm. to, you know, uh, oppress people. But this time, after Estimate Independence, we think we, we're really free. Mm-hmm. We are not. Because it's a new way to oppress us. It's economic uh, oppression. Twelve years ago, when we, we you know, we call out for, you know, sustainable agriculture, mm-hmm. you know, uh, agriculture conservation, mm-hmm. agroecology, biodiversity, mm-hmm. nobody listened to us. Mm-hmm. And I think we are we're just insane people. <laughs> But today, you know, starting to so many organizations, yeah. so many international agencies, including FIO, starting to implement, you know, uh, family farm and exactly. also uh, agriculture conservation. They're starting to call sustainable agriculture and, you know, different uh, organizations like Mercy Corp and Oxfam and mm-hmm. uh, Care International, mm-hmm. World Business, starting to look at in a new, new way of approaching uh, agriculture. Do you think climate change is having something to do with this? Because I I spoke to someone here at the National University and he's going to the Paris talks on climate change and I think Timor mainly wants some loss and damage compensation Mm. for, you know, the climate change effect of other countries. But do you think climate change is making people think we have to be more self-sufficient? Probably people don't understand uh, more about climate change, yeah, you know, the Mm. term itself. But the impact of the climate change to the people is real. The last question, you may not want to ask this, and I don't like asking Timorese people this, it's about the Timor oil, Mm. because I'm embarrassed, because Australia has, to my way of thinking, stolen a lot of the oil rights that you have. It's pretty obvious that we've been getting royalties for a long time from the oil. Um, And yet it's your oil, it's in your sovereign wealth fund and, you know, it's meant to be funding your development. But I don't like asking Timorese people because I feel ashamed. Also, Australia is a big exporter of Mm. climate change. Mm. We're digging up a lot of coal mines, exporting that and that's creating climate change. So we are going to have to stop Mm. with our coal and gas and I'm wondering if Timor is going to have to stop with the oil eventually. Mm. But what are people saying about that now? What are they thinking about the oil? Do they want to get it out quickly and use it? Or are there any people saying that we may have to leave it under the sea? Mm. Yeah, it's a very uh, dilemmatic, right? Because uh, oil is, uh, you know, oil and gas, the only uh, for the moment is the only source of Mm. uh, wealth that we could use to develop the economic of the country and to help, you know, uh, in every uh, aspect of development. So, therefore, if we we don't use, someone else will use (laughs) because we're living in the uh, global, uh, you know, world, mm. global economic, you know, any country that they have, you know, all the capacity, all, you know, uh, knowledge, they'll go and stealing, you know, anyone's uh, world. Mm. So, if we don't use it, then we're going to lose it. <laughs> so, 
uh, no, we have no ways. You know, we, you know, if we have other source, if we really, you know, sovereign, we really control our country, yeah. and no any involve of any countries, then Timorese will decide it whether yeah. we're gonna use that oil, or we we save it for mm. for for the future. Yes, and we could we could decide whatever we want. Mm. But now it's not that, not that easy to decide because, as I said, if we don't use it, someone else will will use it, yeah. and then, you know, left the you know, the junk and you know the destruction back to the you know the people who own that resource, and then the causing you know environmental uh, problem. Cause economical problems, social problem, and so many things. Mm. This is happening uh, all over the world. It's a, they call it the resources curse. That's right, a resource curse. Mm. So before we we get you know became a resource curse, I think we have importantly is we have to use that resource uh, in the better way, mm. in the sustainable way. We have to use that to invest in the. In the area where it can, you know, sustain the country for mm. the future. For instance, education, health, agriculture, tourism, mm. and and so on. That if we strong, if people have uh, better education and they have in a good environment, they have good health, you know, good production. I think we don't need uh, that not that much money. No. And the country can survive because we have enough food, we have good water, healthy environment, and people from other countries can visit our country because yeah. uh, they can come as a tourist. Yeah. We can develop the tourism industry, not like a Bali or Thailand no. or Hong Kong, but it's uh, like an ecotourism, which is a lot better for you know, the environment, for social and also culture. And economic. Thank you. So that we've been talking to Ego Lemos, who's very kindly given me half an hour of his time here in Delhi at uh, Lao Hamotuk. I'm at the Biro Pite Clinic, and here is the famous Dr. Dan Murphy. Welcome to the program, Dan. Hi, how are you? Tell us a little bit about your work and just give us a climate change take on oxygen. We see women every day that from the age of three or four on, they are in a room with an open fire. So they're breathing smoke all the time. So that kind of, uh, that kind of uh, environment is not conducive to good lung health. And then we have the highest TB rate of Southeast Asia. And so you throw in TB and then their lungs are filled with smoke and you run into a lot of problems. The environment, we see a lot of people uh, throw things inappropriately. And uh, luckily, we don't have such a large population large population and they don't produce a lot of waste but otherwise we'd have problems there too because no one does the right things with anything mm. so we have a long way to go we have uh, some large generators that were bought from China and they use heavy oil and uh, 
the heavy oil also does not uh, stay within the Kyoto Accords, which we're signatory of. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't dare ask anyone from Timor would they leave all their oil under the sea because Australia is not leaving all its coal and gas under the ground. Well, what you know, we should be leading, but I don't expect Timor to lead on that. Here, here's what you know and that a lot of people don't, and that is that $50 billion worth of resources from the Timorese side of the underground oil has been taken by Australia. $50 billion worth. And you're one of the richest countries ever. When, when I go to Melbourne, I am shocked at how sophisticated everything is and how nice it is and how wealthy everyone is. And yet, you find it appropriate to take $50 billion worth of resources from one of the poorest countries in this part of the world. It makes one wonder. It's a crime. <laughs> you know, the, the world is not set up to deal with the inequity between those that have and those that don't. And that is what causes a lot of the problems on Earth. Mm-hmm. And until we can address that, people are going to be aggressive. They're going to try to get their share. They're going to try to get their kids a little bit better life. And what it leads to is political and uh, other problems. We've got these desperate Rohingya people just floating around in their own waste, and no one will take them. And there are a million of those over there. Nowhere to go. So East Timor, luckily, Jose Ramos Horta came out and said, why shouldn't East Timor take its share? That was a little bit refreshing, you know. Why shouldn't everyone take their share? And better yet, why don't we make it a priority to have the world be a little bit better place so people can stay in their own area? So we have a lot of work to do here. We're focused on the suffering that comes with bad health. We work very hard. We're, we're having some impact, but we could do much, much more. And I always throw this in, but should we have more resources, we know exactly what to do with them. <laughs> well, you've got a chance here to speak to the Melbourne audience and later to the podcast audience. You know, what do you need? And in terms of this maternal health, nutrition, you know, better conditions for people to be healthy. To me, it's not rocket science. The answer to East Timor's problems, not just health, but other problems, is empowerment of women. I'm sorry, women are serious about life. They've been working since they were three years old. Men are off playing. They don't understand how serious things are. Women, hard they know what hard work is from morning until night. They are the ones that take responsibility. And to the extent that we can empower women and get them involved at all different levels of every kind of uh, endeavor in East Timor, we have a chance. Mm. Oh, well, I agree. A message to Australia? Yeah, Australia. Be open to learning about your uh, interrelationship with East Timor and what it's been historically and what it is now and, and try to make it better. You know, Australia would like to think that they are among the most educated, the most civilized, the most generous, the most friendly people anywhere. Okay, let's put that into practice. It can't just be something that you say and give lip service to. Mm-hmm. Put it into practice with East Timor. Well, it could make a difference. We're here for the um, awards, you know, the Order of Timor Awards. And yesterday the president, you know, embraced all of these Australians and people from all over the world, Japan and lots of countries were here, Portugal, journalists and so on, Indonesia even. And I interviewed a few of them and some of them were just in tears. And I said, why are you crying after the interview? And they said, because so many people died here. You know, this well, was such a big suffering to get this independence. Now let's still get behind making it work. Individually, I think Australians are very generous and, and caring. Uh, sometimes the spotlight is taken off of East Timor and people forget. Yeah. Uh, but 1999, it was it was everyone was thinking about it. Um, governments, on the other hand, 
it seems like they cannot do things appropriately. We don't have good leadership. And that's not just Australia, pretty much in general. And the priority of humans and uh, human dignity and human rights doesn't get much attention at all. So we have problems everywhere. Thank you very much. That's Dr. Dan Murphy in Barra Pita Clinic. We've come away for the weekend to Atauro Island, just opposite Dili in East Timor. This used to be a prison island during the Portuguese and Indonesian era, but now it's being reshaped, I think, um, more like on an eco-focus. Uh, I'm going to speak later to some scientists, but first let's hear from Barry Hinton, whose social enterprise Eco Lodge was given the name Barry's Place by the Lonely Planet. Welcome, Barry. And what was the name that you and Lena were going to call your lodge? Yeah, initially we wanted to use a local name for the for the place, and it had a special place in previous culture as well as a meeting place. So the local name for it was going to be Nuha Quarter, but since um, the Lonely Planet needed to get a name in. It's been named Barry's Place, and it was generally our lodge started from all my friends and just you know, people I know in Dilly coming to my place for the weekend as we were starting off and really roughing it as guests. But yes, we're going to Barry's Place for the weekend, so it stuck from there. Well, what was your vision with Lena? Um, Coming here to Aturu, I think you were a volunteer earlier on, and Lena worked in uh, policing work and health, women's work. Um, I think you have a permaculture background, or at least now you have permaculture principles guiding what you do. What would you say was your vision as it's developed? The basic thing that had me, uh, well, that drove the whole lodge is I didn't like going to Dili, so I wanted to spend as much time on the island. So what did we have locally that we could use in order to do an eco-lodge? So once I, started, once I came across the permaculture principles and everything, it just fitted perfectly with eco-tourism, but with the culture here and strengthening culture and all local workers, all local materials, and do the best we can with what we've got. And that's, where we, that's where we basically were driven the whole time. Yeah, it looks to me like you've, you've based the houses. The, listeners, the, if you come to stay here, you stay in a little um, cabin and it all looks out to the sea and a lot of people, I think, must be divers because there's a lot of flippers and uh, diving stuff around. Um, but it looks to me that these guest houses are sort of based on the local Timorese village sort of architecture. They've got thatch roofs and palm frond walls, and it looks very similar. But you've also added solar panels, grey water, recycling, mulching, do these drop toilets, I think there must be. Um, and I don't think that the average... Timorese village out in the remote areas has those features so could this be implemented by the majority of Timorese villages if um, you know it was became a government project to roll that out and would that be desirable? Yeah look it it doesn't need much money to do one of these it just means needs time so you can't come with an outcomes base I'm going to do a lodge I'm going to have it done and you've got to cut everything sustainably like your bamboo cut your thatch once a year so whatever you can see and you can get for the year that's all you can build there's nothing more you can do so we had a young manager here who was a bright kid because I'm a primary school teacher I saw him growing up as a kid and he had the twinkle on his eye and he, he went to university abroad came back we pulled him in as our manager trained him up he's now on his own doing his own little lodge very similar to this on the other side of the island because he knows how simple it is he's got a little bit of money coming in from now working in fisheries 
and he's got his family building a simple lodge exactly like this on the yeah. other side. So it's very easy to do, for the locals to do. The government um, doesn't get what ecotourism is. Uh, we've tried to register our tourism business as ecotourism. On our business registration form, we've got apartments written down. So we're registered as apartments. We're not apartments at all. They just don't understand what ecotourism's about. So the more local teamerees and national teamerees that come through here and see everything... They're astounded that you know, their local materials can be done up and look so nice in a, yeah. a very um, sound, environment, environmentally friendly yeah. um, context. Well, just tell you, I'm thinking more of the health point of view. You know, we're worried about climate change and resilience. You know, that people need to be resilient and farming areas are going to be threatened by climate change. They probably already are here when you have tempestuous rains or landslides and drought. I know on the main part of main island of Timor they have drought causing a huge panic in the um, crops. But I, I, I had to go to the toilet when I was out in the bush. With, you know, we were on the road along there and we stopped at a little place and a lady kindly let me go into her place to the toilet. But it was really, wasn't even a squat toilet like other places in Asia. It was just a concrete floor. And I, I thought, oh, when I came here, I thought, you, you know, just pit toilets makes a big difference it, what's the diff, why, why isn't there a sort of big push to just put that in so and the hygiene that goes with that you know just some uh, rainwater tank or you yeah. know those um, two things would improve health it can but it's a tricky one because it's a cultural cultural oh. and an economic reason why it doesn't happen one because um, since Indonesian times there's money when you go to the toilet you wash with water and here, with the compost toilets, you can't put water in them. Uh, and there is a lack of water on the island to start with. Uh, one toilet roll costs about 40 cents, and no one's going to fork out money for on um, toilet paper. So it's a great idea, but it's just not something that they're ready economically to do. Uh, they know they need... And there are some uh, programs here in water and sanitation, and they're putting in toilets for certain villages and homes but they are all water water closet, so water toilets. Yeah. Uh, the little squat ones with a flush, with a flush and everything. Uh, Atoro, as you said before, was a prison island, and it's yeah. a very good reason for that. It was basically because there was no prison here. The island itself was a prison because there was no water or lack of water, therefore lack of agriculture and lack of food. So when people were dumped here, they were left to survive, and the people are extremely resilient, probably more so than the mainland, yeah. because of that lack of water and food, and they... Some of the older people here in Portuguese times, the stories they had and what they were eating, you know, it was just amazing that you know, they actually survived and what little they did have. Mm-hmm. So it was a good lesson for me to be as frugal as possible mm-hmm. and to make things work locally. So mm-hmm. it's just, once again, working with what you've got. Yeah. Well, um, let's talk now about the divers who are here. They, I think that's the main reason people come to Barry's Place would be to go diving. Um, and today happens to be the United Nations Day World Day of Turtles. I think every single day of the year is devoted to something, and today is Turtles Day. Do any of the tourists who come here for the diving and the lovely coral reef, do any of these people connect the climate-changing export of coal and gas from Australia with the threat to turtles, coral reefs and the whole sea? That's a a massive leap for people to make that link, but (laughs) I think they realise that, you know, the state of our coral reef directly at the front of our lodge is pristine. It's better than the Great Barrier Reef. And the damage that's done back home to the Great Barrier Reef with all the, the crop runoff and with the silt, you know, the dumping in, uh, up around Mackay and Gladstone, 
people really back home haven't often been out to the Great Barrier Reef themselves. They hear about it and how wonderful the Great Barrier Reef is. Until they come here and dive, and we've had marine biologists after marine biologists coming through and studying, doing transects and just going, this is top five of the world here, out on our doorstep, because of biodiversity. There's no runoff. We've had very, there's no rivers or creeks on the islands. There's no runoff to destroy it. Uh, the fishermen are fishing reasonably sustainably. Um, there's no real, there's mainly only spear guns and trolling or a few nets mm. here and there. So the coral's in extremely good good condition everything. Yeah. So it is a major draw card. We have uh, whales, the humpback whales come through. We've had everything from dugons, hammerhead sharks, uh, shark whales, all seen. Not, you can't guarantee these things, but they, you know, through the year, people are lucky enough, you know, they get to see them. And a lot of people, our main thing is, if you come here, we've got to get you out on the reef. You've got mm-hmm. to see this because it may not be here in years to come mm-hmm. because of climate change. We've had a fishing hasn't been as good the last year because the sea temperatures have been a lot hotter than normal. Um, and the local fishermen know that as well. And there's a lot of programs in Timor and on at Toro trying to get fisheries back up and going and looking at climate change and the impact on our environment here. Okay. Well, you said to me before you came from Queensland, and um, I think we're all aware in Australia about the shocking um, ripping up of very rapid ripping up of a lot of our land, especially farming land for coal mines and the export through the Great Barrier Reef. I just wanted to know if some of the... Inter- like you ma- I imagine you have Portuguese people, European people here, and they'd be urban people or aware of climate change, wouldn't they? What, what do they say about that? Do they know about Australia doing this or are we just getting away with it? Uh, look, the, a lot of the Europeans, when they come here, the, fir- the, the main thing they focus on is the reef. They just want to see the reef and... I'll often ask, are you a strong swimmer? Mm. And I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh-huh. my definition as an Australian is a strong swimmer is doing your bronze medallion and know what yeah. you're doing. These guys are doggy paddling and saying they're strong. <laughs> so I've got to say to them, look, you know, on the Great Barrier Reef, we have very strong currents. Here we've also, do you know what a rip is? They've got no idea. So it's educating them. But when they start talking about Australia, they were saying they have no interest to go to Australia because they have heard that the Great Barrier Reef is in under stress and that they've heard that it's better here. So they kind of basically saying, we're seeing the best in the world, well, there's no need now to go to the Great Barrier Reef, even though it's an icon, mm. but the actual healthiness of the coral is better here. So they are very, and especially the Spaniards, the Spanish are very, very big in uh, the UN fisheries and they know all the statistics and everything. Mm. So they, yeah, they're focusing more and more here in that coral triangle area. Yeah. So Australia's kind of being left behind because of the damage that's being done both environmentally and just with the social unawareness of the impact of those things back home. Well, how hard is it for the Timorese to create these environment protection parks, you know, protected areas? I think we've created huge ones in Australia, but I don't know it's so easy for a new young government like Timor to do that. Yeah, once again, the Timorese, this is their backyard, so this is normally, it's all the fishermen, it's their office, mm. so they see this every single day. So they don't think it's anything spectacular or, or anything at all. They see changes in the reef and know that it is either part of a cycle that's happening, but they don't get how special it really is because they've never seen another reef, or they may have fished around in other parts of Timor or across in Weta, Indonesia here, but which is still pristine reef, so they kind of don't really get how special this really is. And going back to the turtle day you were saying before, we're still educating locals, don't eat the, you know, the turtle eggs because that there is you know there's a lot of food security issues here there's always especially at the end of the dry and you know they're still eating 
turtle eggs are still eating turtles. They're making turtle shell jewellery, which is a traditional cultural thing as well. And it's, it's slow because it's education-based and it's just saying, look, guys, your grandchildren may not see turtles again. They know they're seeing less and less. Um, but they're saying, hey, this is food. So when a government comes in and does a marine protected area, they're going, well, thanks, guys, you took the food off us. Now what are we going to do? Can we go, what are you going to do? Yeah. So the whole thing, the key with the marine protected areas is giving them an area outside that set up with fish attracting devices or seaweed farming or an alternative livelihood for the fishermen we do it here through tourism so our fishermen here we have five fishermen on our books that go out onto the reef and take our our guests out for a snorkel for an hour at a time Mm -hmm. and they get ten dollars for that hour so that local wage is five dollars a day so they doubled their wage straight away and that's stopping them they don't have to go out and fish for for money anymore because they're making more money from the tourism so it's they still fish for food for the family but they're starting to get that tourism is and it can change and impact that reef because they're on it a lot less and they know it can make money from the tourism okay can we come back now to the you know solar power wind power uh, you have got these solar panels here and people told me oh guess go to barry's place go to outer islands in the great lonely planet god you know, you've got this solar power but um I'm wondering, you know, we also went to the Baro Pite Clinic. We talked to Dr. Dan Murphy there, and he said TB is a big problem here, and wood fires just make it worse. And I just thought, well, why don't people have those little individual solar-powered ovens? You know, I'm sure the ATA or some organisations quite a while ago, uh, community organisations, were trying to roll those out in... I don't know if it was specifically Timor, but in lots of places where it's remote area, like off Mm. the grid. And to cut down on using wood for the fires and to use solar panels. Again, I'm sure you're going to say to me, oh, well, it's a change in tradition. They're used to doing that, and and nobody wants to be told what to do. But if it's causing, as Dr. Dan said, like this health, lung health problem. Anything you can do to help the women, especially with... And it's helping the environment. So you're saying to the women, we can give you a more efficient way of cooking your food, even if it's less wood. So if we give you a little burner, we've got some little clay burners here, so they're like a rocket rocket stove they're called. Basically three sticks in there, and it's so hot, and it's funneled up, it's got cast iron and everything. They could use probably about one-fifth of the wood that they would normally use on a three-rock fire, which they mm-hmm. so have three rocks on the ground to put on top. That then we worked out, if they go out and use use one of these instead of their three rocks they've got a full day of the week free from not picking up firewood mm. this means less damage to you know less firewood collection less trees cut down yeah. and everything so that the trouble with the solar ovens and things like that is simple logistics mm. you know who's going to introduce this are they trialed are they tested are they going to work yeah. who's going to fund them so we've had all these ideas that come through before yeah. comes back to you know does the government get behind it yeah. and they've just gone you know all the national electric electrification grid and we've got a power to 90 percent but there's always the remote villages that really should have been focused on from the start that aren't mm. on the grid and they can be doing solar lights at night or they can yeah. be doing very simple if not the rocket cookers the yeah. um the solar powered ovens and things like that and let's come to that electricity grid that's all based on heavy oil um can you tell us a bit is that going to be forever oh uh, there's so much um conspiracy around the whole lot where they're supposed to be now to be turned over to gas in the future and things like that but apparently they're not now and it was just was it 
it was a whole thing where they wanted to leap forward, they wanted to give electricity, mm. so it was just a quick fix. Um, not much thought in it. They're spending a lot of money on fuel all the time. The oil and gas now is locked up, and there's a lot of problems in the, with maritime borders with Australia. Mm. So, look, it was they wanted electricity. They got it. They, it's cost them. It's going to cost them in the future. So they did have the opportunity to do best practice through alternate technologies and wind farms. And we've had ATA here doing all those studies, and would have been viable hydroelectricity down near Balcao and places. It's the cost of development. Mm. Bottom line. Let's let's develop. Let's do it quick. Let's get everyone mm. out of the out of poverty. Just to finish, come back to the permaculture idea. I I have only just blown in. I'm just here for the weekend. But you and your wife have been living here for a long time now. And um, the, from that permaculture thing of seeing what's available, using what's available, getting the big picture. You, you're not trying to reinvent the weed. You're trying to go with the flow isn't it really go bend with the bamboo or something like that I think that's the permaculture idea is very sort of sensitive to what's available and what's feasible so just what's your vision say for this island we hope that we can push boundaries enough and push the government enough and wake them up to know that the niche market for a Toro island in Timor-Leste is ecotourism because of the low impact on the environment, because of the pristine reefs that we've got, but because everything's local, it's all local staff, it's all local materials, everything stays so the money stays on the island and I think the key the key is that you know it gets the word sustainable, it's sustainable everything's got to be sustainable, it's got to be capacity building and it's all this hype all the time you hear these heroes but in the end sustainability takes a lot of hard work to do and it's a lot of maintenance it's a lot of constant battling things all the time Mm. but if you're with nature and flowing with nature and you're watching nature and seeing where the winds are coming from Mm. and seeing what you know it makes a lot easier when you design it you design it once you get it right and then you know you do your basic maintenance we don't treat anything you know sure there's borer in a few things and there might be termites but you know in the food we've got other forests that we've replanted out for a lot of the sugar palm go and cut them down in five years time we've got more timber so it's just basically everyone back home goes oh we need to live more sustainably and we're going well let's rubbish you guys you cannot possibly live sustainably unless you're out in the sticks somewhere in australia Mm. because as soon as you step into a a town or anywhere like that you're just kidding yourself basically so this is one thing that we have a lot of school groups from australia come here and we basically say to them look if you're trying to live sustainably in Australia, this is how I think you do it. Mm. This is everything local. Instead of these posts, you, may, you might have gum, you might have eucalypt, you might have ironwood, you might have something. Mm. Whatever's in Australia, mm. you look around. We well, haven't got this kind of you know, roofing, but mm. it's just probably the, the tipping point for me, actually, was I went to the Stockman's Hall of Fame in Longridge and saw one of the shacks that they had built out of planks and, yeah. and all that and slotted, no nails or anything. Yeah. They could pull it down, put it on their cut. Their technology back in the early 1900s is probably 100 years ahead of where we are here. Uh-huh. So I went, wow, man, they at least had, they could do their own iron, they had all yeah. this technology, whereas here we're just you know, doing mm. the best we can with what we've got and yeah. redigging that traditional knowledge up and really reinforcing that the knowledge that they had should not be lost and that it needs to be reinforced. And we've got younger builders now who have now become builders. 
following in their father's footsteps and they know how to do all this kind of stuff. So. Oh, thank you very much. That's marvellous. Uh, listeners, we've just been on the island Atta Uro near Dili, just out from Dili and speaking to Barry Hinton. So thank you to all our speakers today from Timor Leste and thanks to Viv for going well and truly out of her way to... Uh, uh, record those interviews. I'd also just like to thank a few of our uh, listeners who have donated to the Radiothon drive for 3CR and for BZE this year. In particular, John Stephen, Stevenson, Robin Laurie and Vicky Sharp. Excuse me. Thank you so much for your generous donations. I'll have a full listing next week. But, uh, we have reached our target Thank you very much for that. Thank you also to the BZE team for putting together another great show and all the attendant administrative work that seems to go on around it. That's uh, Glenn, Teddy for the wonderful promos, uh, Vivian, uh, uh, Miwa and uh, Roger. I was just grappling for your name then, Roger. Thanks so much for that. And remember to take action. As Senator Rice was saying tonight, one way of taking action would be to ring your energy retailer and question them as to whether or not any of their credits are coming from uh, native forests. Uh, another way would be to log on to BZE. Perhaps you could volunteer. Or there are a myriad number of ways, particularly one of my favourites is lobbying your um, local MP. Over whatever climate change you wish. You're spoilt for choice. See you next week.